Let's go tonight to Jeremiah chapter 20, if you will, the book of Jeremiah and chapter number 20. We're going to look at just one verse as our text, and then, if you will, keep your Bible handy as we'll look at several verses in this chapter and those around this chapter in just a moment. Jeremiah chapter 20, and we'll look at verse number 9 as our text tonight. Jeremiah is speaking as we come to verse 9. The Bible says in verse 9 of chapter 20, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. No, how, no matter how hard man works at it, this world will never be a perfect place. Amen. Now, man works really hard at it. The uh, scientists, the psychologists, the sociologists, the politicians, those in religion, everybody is working hard to try to make the world a utopia in which we can live and, and raise our families and enjoy life and live out our dreams. But the world is never going to be a perfect place. Now, it once was. When God created the heavens and the earth, he stood back on that sixth day, and the Bible says the Lord saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so God had created this perfect place. But Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, Hath God said, ye shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shalt thou touch it, lest ye die. The serpent said, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, gave also her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed the direct command of God, who in chapter 2 had said, Of all the trees in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, ye shall not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, now Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They have sinned. And as a result, in chapter 3, God says, Because thou hast eaten of the fruit of the tree, whereof I commanded thee, saying, Thou shouldest not eat, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. You and I know tonight that all of the destruction, all of the disease, all of the division of this world today is a result of that curse. It's a result of that sin. And today, the world is filled with chaos, it's filled with confusion, it's filled with uncertainty, all because man sinned against God. And I don't know about you, but when I turn on the news and I see what's going on in this world, it's really discouraging. 
especially for those of us that maybe are a little bit older and we, we maybe look back and we see some of the freedoms or the liberties or some of the enjoyment that we've had here in America and we look at it now and we think, what happened? We think, why is this going on and why all this destruction and why all this division and why all this, this terror and why all this fear and, and, and confusion and it just seems like nobody has any answers. It kind of reminds me of when I was growing up. When I was in college, there was rarely a day. We had chapel every single day. There was rarely a chapel where a preacher did not come and tell us as students in that college that we would never see in America our 200th birthday. We would never make it to July 4th, 1976. That America was on a path to destroy itself. America was going to disintegrate itself because of our rejection of God and because of our rebellion against God. And the track that we were on, preachers said, we're not going to make it to our 200th birthday. And there was some pretty good evidence of that. I went to public school. I, I did not attend a kindergarten. I, they didn't have kindergarten when I was going to school. Incidentally, Watertown, Wisconsin, where I grew up, is the home of America's first kindergarten. If you want to take a trip to Watertown, Wisconsin, you can go to a place called the Octagon House. It's an eight-sided house. It's a historical marker there in Watertown. And right behind the Octagon House is a little frame building where the first kindergarten was ever taught in the United States of America in 1848. But when I went to kindergarten, or when I got to kindergarten, they didn't have kindergarten. I'm older than you think. <laughs> so I went to first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and I went to a public school, and in that, in that public school, every morning, a bell would ring, and in the classroom, up in the corner, was a speaker, and a voice would come over that speaker, it was the principal of our school, and he would say, good morning, boys and girls, hope you're all at your desk and seated, because I want to read to you a verse out of the Bible. He would read a Bible verse. Then he'd say, now, boys and girls, I want you to bow your head, close your eyes, make sure your hands are folded on your desk, because I'm going to pray and ask God to give us a good day. He would pray every morning, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Fifth grade, went back to the same school. Speaker was still in the corner, but it was only used for announcements. Because in 1962, and then again in 1963, laws were passed to take prayer and Bible reading out of the public schools. And many people saw that as a watershed moment in our history. Because people thought, well, if we're going to take God and the Bible away from our children, what hope do we have? And many people thought, this is the beginning of the end. As we were removing our youngsters from the influence of God and the Bible in the public spectrum. And then, of course, right behind that uh, law came a lot of difficulty to our country. The rock music culture swept across America. Sixth grade, I went to school one morning, and the girl right in front of me, Judy Becker, she had my name written on her tennis shoes. I thought, man, that is awesome. But then I saw three other names on her tennis shoes. And unbeknownst to me, because I was at church, the Ed Sullivan Show debuted the Beatles from England. 
And the Beatles, uh, their music came into America and the rock music culture began. And right behind it, the sexual revolution. And then we had the riots out in Los Angeles and Watts and then on Kent State University here in Ohio. And we had all this destruction and car burnings and buildings being destroyed and people riding in the streets. And many people saw America's doomed. America's headed down a wrong path. And there's no hope. America's going to destroy itself. It kind of reminds me of today. I think of those days and following all of that, we had inflation. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, inflation. First car I ever bought by myself, I paid 18.5% interest on the loan. $48.48 every month. Most of it was interest. My wife and I got married. We bought our first home in LaPorte, Indiana. Paid $26,000 for that house. Probably the nicest house we've ever lived in. Wasn't the biggest, but it was the nicest house we ever lived in. A little Cape Cod home on Weller Avenue in LaPorte, Indiana. Interest rate 10.5%. Every month, $173.57. Now I remember made my first house payment. I got up my amortization schedule. I wanted to see how much equity I now had in my house. And I looked over, I had 17 cents of equity. I thought, I am on my way. Inflation. Gas shortages. I was preaching revivals in those days, traveling with a trailer and pulling my family around town and uh, around the country. And and, uh, you couldn't buy gas on the weekends. Gas stations were closed. No gas on Saturday or Sunday. And I was preaching revival Sunday to Friday and, and, and no gas stations from A to B. And I had two 20-gallon tanks on my truck. I had five five-gallon gas cans in the back full of gas. I had two 30-pound tanks of propane. I mean, we were a moving bomb. If anybody had hit us, we would have destroyed America. (laughs) Interesting days. But could I encourage us tonight to lift our eyes above the chaos and above the uncertainty and above the confusion And set our affection on things above and not on the things of the earth. Could I encourage us tonight to think about what Isaiah said in chapter 26? Thou keep me in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. We must look unto Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, Jeremiah is going through some difficult times here, times much like what we are experiencing today. And I want to look at three parallels tonight in the life of Jeremiah that mirror a lot of what we are experiencing today. I want you to see, first of all, a universal collapse. Now, by the time we get to Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah is not a young man anymore. He's not, he's not a rookie. He, this isn't the first trip around the block. This is not his first rodeo, as we might say. Jeremiah is, 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 has been around a little bit. In fact, Jeremiah was alive during the time of King Josiah. Do you remember Josiah? He was the boy king. Came to the throne at the age of eight. And it wasn't an easy time to come to the place of leadership. His father, Amnon, his grandfather, Manasseh, 
had led the nation of Israel into all kinds of idolatrous worship. In fact, for 57 years prior to Josiah, the nation had forsaken God, left God out, and was now worshiping all these idols. Every place you look, there were groves and carved images and molten images, and the people had rejected God. And his dad and his grandfather had led the nation away from God. So now all of a sudden, here's Josiah at the age of eight. But the Bible says in, in 2 Chronicles 34 that while he was yet young, in, his, in the eighth year of his reign, so he's now 16, as a teenager, the Bible says he began to seek after the God of David, his father. So he, he puts aside his human heritage through Amnon and Manasseh, and he sets his eyes on his spiritual heritage through David. And Josiah says to himself, we, we've got to get the remnant back together. We've got to get God's people back together. We've got to worship. We've got to assemble. Well, the house of God hasn't been used for six decades. It's in shambles. So he takes some money out of the treasury. He hires some workmen to repair and amend the house of the Lord. So these workmen go in, and they're fixing up the house of God to worship once again. And as they did, they found a book. But they didn't know what it was. And so they take it to Shaphan, the scribe. And Shaphan reads it, and, he, and he, he understands, this is the word of God. This is the Torah. This is the Old Testament law. And so he takes it to Josiah, the king, and he reads it to the king. And when King Josiah heard the reading of the word of God, he rent his clothes, which was symbolic of his humility before God. And he says, this is why we're, we're in trouble. This is why our nation is, is, is declining. This is why uh, we're in trouble. We have forgotten God. We've forgotten his word. So he calls the people together, the young, the old, the, the adults, the children. He calls them all together. And they read the word of God to them. And after finishing the reading of the Old Testament law, Josiah stands up and he says, ladies and gentlemen, what you just heard read is the way I'm going to live. And what you just heard read is the way I'm going to lead this country. And he caused the people to stand to it. In other words, to agree. And they stood. And for 31 years, Israel experiences one of the greatest revivals on the record of God's word. Jeremiah lives through all that. But Jeremiah lives long enough to see Josiah come off of the throne. And he's followed by Jehoiakim. Then Jehoiada. And then Zedekiah. And those next three kings take the nation of Israel right back into idolatrous worship. And this whole book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is crying out to the people, Stop! Stop and think what you're doing. We've already been down that road. We've already lived that life. We don't want to go back that way. We've got to stop now and repent. We've got to stop now and return. We've got to have revival. And all through the book, he's crying out to them. In chapter 2, he says, uh, Thy own wickedness shall correct thee. Thy own backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is a wicked thing and evil that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and hast followed idols. In chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, break up your fallow ground. Take away the foreskins off of your hearts. You've become desensitized. You're calloused to the things of God. You're turning an indifferent ear to him. In chapter 4 and verse 22, he says, my people are foolish. They have no knowledge. 
They are sottish children. They are wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. What does that remind you of today? We have gotten really good at corruption. We've gotten even better at covering it up. But you go on the streets today and you say, uh, can you quote John 3.16? Remember when you used to watch a football game and every time there was an extra point, there's some guy in the stands with a card that said John 3.16 and everybody in the world knew what it said. He just had to hold up the reference. When's the last time you saw that sign? You know why? Because nobody knows what it means. We are wise to do evil, but to do good, we have no knowledge. And so in chapter 7, Jeremiah says, amend your ways and your doings. Come back to God. Come back to him. Forsake this way and come back to God. In chapter 8, he says, the wise men are ashamed, they're dismayed, they're taken, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. By the time he comes to chapter 9, he says, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people Israel. In chapter 13, he says, you've pushed the envelope too far. You're going to be destroyed. There's going to be a collapse. We're going to go into captivity. And he prophesies the Babylonian captivity. Verse 9 of chapter 13 or 19, he says, The cities of Judah shall be shut up, and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive. She shall be utterly carried away. In fact, if you look up at the verse just before chapter 20, verse 15 of chapter 19, he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all her towns And all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks, that they might not hear my words. A universal collapse. In fact, look at the thoroughness of this collapse. Look in chapter 20, look at verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself. And all thy friends, they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with a sword. Now notice he outlines it in verse 5. I will deliver all the strength of this city. In other words, all of your military defense systems, they're gone. They don't exist. You have no defense. Verse 5, and all the labors thereof. Your jobs, your ability to make a living, it's gone. Verse 5, he goes on, and all the precious things are of, all your culture, your arts, your theater, your sports, it's gone. And all the treasures of the kings of Judah, your federal reserve, your bank accounts, your retirement funds, they're gone. A universal collapse. Now, none of this surprises Jeremiah. He's seen it coming. He's known the handwriting's on the wall. And he's been warning, he's been pleading with the people to stop in their tracks, to turn around, to repent, to have revival. He's been calling them back to God, but everybody's just going their way with no one paying any attention. 
So when the fall comes, when the captivity happens, Jeremiah is not surprised. What he is surprised about is, secondly, a unrelenting criticism. You see, the the fall of Israel here does not surprise Jeremiah. What surprises him is he's about to get blamed for it. Have you noticed who we're blaming for the problems in America today? It's always, you know, that, that group that's so right. That group that's too conservative. Those deplorables. Look at verse number one of chapter 20. Now Pashur, the son of Emer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So we learn here that this man Pashur, in verse 1, is a priest. Jeremiah, we know, is a prophet. Now, these two Old Testament roles were different, the priest and the prophet. They had different responsibilities in God's way of leading his people in the Old Testament, the prophet and the priest. But if you were building an organizational flowchart of the way God led his people in the Old Testament, I think you'd have to put the prophet and the priest on the same line. They had different responsibilities, but their authority would have been equal. For example, when God wanted to speak to his people, they didn't have a written word of God as we would have it today. The Bible was not a a complete canon of God's word yet. And so when God wanted to speak to his people or have a message for his people, he would speak through a prophet or through a priest. Sometimes through a king, but most often those two offices were the ones that God used to deliver his message to the people. So I think you'd have to put these two people on an equal line of authority. So here's Pashur, this priest who hears the message of Jeremiah as he comes into his territory, and he doesn't like it. He doesn't want this doom and gloom message of Jeremiah. So the Bible says in verse 2, he smote him. Now the word smote there in the Hebrew carries the connotation of smiting with the hand or smiting with an object. So there's physical abuse here. And then the Bible says in verse 2, he put his feet in the stocks so he confines him and places him at the high gate of Benjamin, the place where people would go in and out of the city. So they could come by and laugh at this defrocked prophet. They could make fun of him. They could deride him. And by the way, none of this is legal. There were false prophets in the Old Testament. There were people that got up and said, thus saith the Lord, when God had not spoken. And God had a way of dealing with those people. If someone declared a message that was not according to God's word, they reported that to the priest. The priest would take it to the high priest. The high priest would convene a group of priests. They would discuss the message. And if it was deemed to be untrue, that priest was removed from his office. But none of that's being done here. This is one person with a little power who decides I'm taking things into my control. And I don't want this message. I don't want this prophet around here. So he physically abuses him, apprehends him, 
places him now in stocks at the entry and exit point of the city where people can come by and mock him. And this takes Jeremiah by surprise. All Jeremiah has tried to do is preach the message. All he's tried to do is deliver what God had said. Jeremiah doesn't understand. He's, he, he's frustrated by this. In fact, look at, look at verse number seven. He says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I, I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made approach unto me, and a derision daily. Jeremiah is saying, God, you, you lied to me. You, you, you deceived me. I was deceived. Lord, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't in my job description. You told me to go preach your message. I did. I said, thus saith the Lord. And now I'm the one getting blamed for it. I'm the one being punished. I'm the one that's being blamed for the collapse. God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. You know that. And so, God, I'm out. I quit. Remember verse 9? Look at it again. Then he said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah is out. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. This is not my fault. I'm getting blamed for something I've not been a part of. Lord, this isn't right, so I quit. You can find somebody else. You see, the devil thinks... That if he can put enough pressure on God's people, they will be silent. The devil thinks if he can bring persecution to the church, he can stop the church. It's exactly what the devil wants. He wants the church to be silent. He wants the doors of the church to close. He doesn't want us to assemble. He doesn't want us to be in our place. He doesn't want cars in the parking lot. He wants the pulpits empty. He wants the baptistry water still. The devil wants all this to happen. And churches are closing by the hundreds across America. Buildings up for sale. Why? Because the devil knows if he can bring some pressure that God's people are susceptible to caving in our neighbors to the north. They put pressure on the evangelical churches, either to subscribe to these LBGTQ uh, uh, rules and regulations, or we're taking your properties. And the evangelical churches caved. We love our buildings. Don't fall in love with your buildings. You have beautiful facilities, but the church is not a building. I told the folks at Lancaster a few weeks back, look, I don't know what the church is going to look like in 10 years. It may not be in this building. We have $100 million worth of buildings at Lancaster. They start taxing us 25% because we won't hire somebody gay on our staff. That's $25 million a year. It's a lot of pressure. But the church can meet under a tree. The church meets underground in China. 25,000 people a day are being saved. 
Upon this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The devil thinks because he's seen our nature. He's seen what we're liable to do is that when the pressure comes, we cave. And Jeremiah is caving here. Jeremiah, he feels the pressure and he's ready to quit. See, Jeremiah didn't have the promises that we have. Jeremiah couldn't look in the New Testament and find the words of Paul where he said, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He couldn't read that promise. He couldn't read Peter where it said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rather rejoice. He couldn't even read the words of Jesus who, say, who said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He didn't have those promises. So Jeremiah is discouraged. Jeremiah is giving up because of an unrelenting criticism. But I want you to see, thirdly, an underlying condition. Now look at verse number nine again. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, period. Now, I don't know how much time elapses between that period and the next word. Maybe it was a few seconds. Maybe it was several minutes. Maybe it was an hour. I personally tend to believe it was several days between that period and the next word. Jeremiah put down the writing instrument. Jeremiah rolled up the scroll. Tied the string. Jeremiah pushed back from the table. Walked out the room, closed the door, and had no intention of returning. I'm out. I'm done. You say, well, Brother Gatch, how, how do you come to that conclusion that it was several days? Because the rest of the verse. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Folks, you don't get weary of something after a couple seconds. You you don't get weary of something after a few minutes. You get weary after days. And Jeremiah's walked out. Jeremiah's quit. Jeremiah says, I'm out. And he closes that door. And time goes by, but there was a fire still burning in Jeremiah's soul. There was something inside of him called the Word of God that was saying, wait a minute, I can't stay. I've got to go back in that room. There's more history to write. There's more story to tell. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are saved tonight, if you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit of God, the fire of the living God living inside of you. And the Bible says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in this world. We cannot stay. We cannot tarry. We cannot fall backward. We must assemble. We must preach. We must go soul winning. We must support missionaries. We must raise up our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We've got to keep our Christian schools lights on. We've got to keep going. Why? There's more story to write. 
This is not the end. See, the devil, he has a bad memory. He thought that day when they put Jesus in that tomb and they sealed that stone and set the Roman guard, he thought, now, I win. Now, I'm in control. But he forgot that behind that stone was the very one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The devil kicked up his heels with glee when they drugged the apostle Paul outside the city and left him for dead. And he thought, now we'll hear this babbler no more. But all of a sudden, that body began to move. And Paul stood up and he shook the dust off. And he went on his way preaching and said later in 1 Corinthians 9, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day they put their bony fingers in the face of Peter and John and they said, you will never say the name Jesus Christ again. You got it? Peter said, we could not but speak the things that we had both seen and heard. You see, Amos said, the lion hath roared, who can but fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Friends, we have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the power of God living within us. We cannot cave. We cannot give up. We cannot quit. I remember July 4th, 1976. It was a Sunday. I started a revival that morning at El Paso, Texas. I was staying in a little room right there at the church and got up that morning thinking this is probably the last day. I mean, I'd heard all the messages. I'd heard all the conspiracy theories. I'd heard that America was doomed and this was our last day. And I approached that Sunday that way. It's my last time to preach. I remember a crowd gathered and we had Sunday school and it went well. Morning service, place was relatively full and people were excited about the week of meetings and I had liberty to preach and there were some decisions made. I was grateful. Went back to that room. The afternoon passed quickly. Came in for the evening service. Good crowd again, filled the building. Liberty to preach and Good service, good response. After everybody went out, I, I thought, well, that's it. I went back to that room and I changed clothes and I decided to go for a walk. And that night I walked across the city of El Paso. Now, I wouldn't recommend that today. <laughs> El Paso is a very long city east to west, not a very high city north to south, but it runs along the southern border with Mexico, the great city of Juarez, almost three million people on the other side of that border. It's very long east to west. In fact, I drove through there this summer and I decided to just clock it to see how long it takes to drive across that city at speed limit. It takes an hour and 10 minutes. It's a long city. It wasn't that large when I was there in 76. But I began to walk the streets. And I said, Lord, This is it. And we deserve it. We don't don't deserve grace. We don't deserve freedom. 
In fact, we deserve judgment. We're a Christian nation. And by the way, we are a Christian nation. Amen. I know the history is being rewritten, but we are a Christian nation. The words in God we trust, those, we didn't come up with those 10 years ago. Those words were emblazed on the Mayflower sails as they came across the Atlantic. That Mayflower would have never made it to the shores of this new country had it not been for William Brewster, a preacher. You see, halfway across the Atlantic, the main post of the sails cracked. They were going down. But William Brewster, this preacher, just happened to have on board with him a printing press. Now, who brings a printing press on a cruise across the Atlantic? But Brewster did. You know why? Because he came with the intent of printing Bibles in the new land. And they took the screw out of that printing press and repaired the staff of the main sail. That's how they got here. 93 references to God and the Bible in the U.S. Constitution and bylaws. We are a Christian nation. When I was 13, I became the caretaker of a cemetery about three miles from our farm. And I had that job all through high school, mowing the grass, digging the graves. In fact, I dug my grandfather's grave when I was 10 years old with my father and my uncle. Did you know that in America, in America, graves... In cemeteries are dug east to west, not north to south. Now, a lot of things are changing today because of cremation and stacking bodies and so on, because we're running out of space for cemeteries. But traditionally, in our heritage, graves are always dug east to west. And it is your job as the sexton to make sure that when that casket is lowered into that grave, that the head of the person in the casket is on the west end of the grave. Do you know why? Because the Lord's coming out of the east. And we're going to rise to meet him. You don't want to rise with your back to him. He might think you're leaving and close the door. That's American heritage. You won't read that in the U.S. history book. But those were the rules. Because we're a Christian nation. It's all over our nation. And I said, God... We've turned our back. We've decided we can do this without you. And we deserve judgment. And I prayed and I said, God, could you give us a little more time though? I mean, I'm just starting out. And I'd like to hold some more revivals. I, my wife and I were just married. We, we'd like to have some kids, maybe see if we could raise them for you. Lord, I know I'm just one person and I know that I don't even know how to pray, but Lord, can you give us a little more time? And I prayed, I walked, I prayed, I walked, I prayed, I walked. And I looked at my watch. It was 12.05. I thought, hey, it's July 5th. It's Monday. We made it. We're still here. And I thought, yeah, but I'm on central time. Maybe God's on mountain time. I better keep praying. Two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock. About five o'clock, I was walking across the parking lot back at the church. The sun was rising over that eastern horizon of El Paso, and 
God's never spoken to me audibly. But I heard his voice. You've been there. And this is what he said to me that morning. He said, John, you just be faithful with every day I give you. And let me worry about the calendar. Could I leave you with that thought tonight? God's got the calendar. No man knows the day or the hour when Jesus is coming back. The Father only. He's got things. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And I have a feeling that if the king's heart is in his hand, so is everybody else's heart. God's got this. Our job is to be faithful. Do you know what God told these people when they went into captivity? They went into captivity. You know what he told them when they got to Babylon? Build a house. Plant a garden. Get married. Raise your kids. Have them get married. Because I'm going to bring you out. And he did. You know what God's saying to us tonight? I got this. Go to work tomorrow. Bring home a paycheck on Friday. Take care of your family. Get to the house of God. Keep witnessing your neighbors. Raise your family. Turn them loose to serve God. Just be faithful. Let me worry about the schedule. Let me worry about what's going on. Lift your eyes above the chaos tonight. Lift your eyes above the confusion. Lift your eyes above the uncertainty and say, God, help me to just be faithful doing doing what I know is right to do. God will take care of everything else because seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things should be added unto you.